0: I found during times of difficulty in the Christian life, as well as in times of joy, one of the great gifts God's given to his churches is, is the songs of the church, the hymns, the psalms. One of my favorite songs, actually as far as I can tell, has never been sung at this church. We'll be singing it in a few weeks. It's called Be Still My Soul. Sarah and I sang at our weddings, uh, despite the fact that it's usually a funeral hymn. <laughs> um, <laughs> There are a number of things at our wedding that people thought, huh. <laughs> but it's a beautiful, beautiful hymn. And in fact, in the Christian faith, many of the things that are appropriate at funerals are, in fact, appropriate at weddings. Because our greatest hope, our greatest marriage is not the one on this earth, but is the one that is to come with Christ. But that hymn, Be Still My Soul, the third verse is, is both painful and comforting. It goes like this. Be still, my soul, when dearest friends depart and all is darkened in the veil of tears. Then shall you better know his love, his heart, who comes to soothe your sorrows and your fears. Be still, my soul, and this is the important part for today. Be still, my soul. Your Jesus can repay from his own fullness all he takes away. So, the question that we ask ourselves over and over throughout our lives, when we face trials, when we face temptations and difficulties, griefs, do those things cause you to draw near to God? Do they cause you to seek out your Savior anew? Or do you find yourself fleeing from him in those moments? Do you hold him at arm's length? We see brokenness outside of us. We see brokenness within ourselves, sin outside, sin within, pain outside and within. And we have to decide, is God destroying me? Is God out to punish me, to hurt me? Or is God, in fact, remaking me, transforming me? Is Jesus, in fact, going to repay from his own fullness all he takes away? This morning we'll be looking at a familiar story for many of us, the story of the centurion's servant. If you want to open with me to Luke chapter 7 or to the bulletin, it's a moment where Christ speaks into this. He says, and he shows he is a healer. He is the great healer. So, Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. After he had finished all his sayings, now those sayings were the Sermon on the Mount, which came in chapter 6. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come. And he comes, and to my servant, do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, which does not return to you void. We pray that you would speak to us this morning in our many circumstances, in our many needs. We seek not only to learn true things, but to have those true things impact us, change us as you have been changing us. Lord, we pray that your word would work powerfully this morning in our minds, in our hearts, and in our hands. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we read through the Gospels, we get the impression that somehow everyone in the nation of Israel was sick. Over and over there are healings, over and over. Even in just the book of Luke, I went through and counted this week, and there are 16 individual accounts of Jesus' healing, plus his own resurrection. To 17. Now that's a lot. For a book that has 24 chapters that have 17 healings is a lot. And so you get the feeling this is important. This is something God is pointing out in what Jesus did and who Jesus is. The idea of Jesus as the great physician, the great healer is not secondary to who he is. Either in who he has been eternally or in who he is towards us in some ways this image of jesus as the great healer the great physician it can be harder for us to hear today because we view our doctors differently i think we can be honest and say if you go to the doctor and within that first visit they can't figure out what's wrong with you how to fix it give you a pill and send you on your way saying good i'll see you next year you feel cheated at least I do. What do you mean I have to wait for my blood work to come back? What do you mean you have to run tests? Give me a pill, send me home, and, and I'll be fine. That's our expectation. We have a WebMD culture. Just tell me what's wrong. Why don't you put yourself in the shoes of a first-century Christian, of a first-century Jew? When you get sick, there's this realization that I don't have any idea how to fix this. I don't know if anyone around me has an idea of how to fix this. I don't even know what's going wrong. I don't know what's causing this pain. There's a fear, and there can still be for us today, a fear that there is nothing that can be done. No one is around who can save me. And it's in this context, this overwhelming fear and need that the centurion hears that Jesus is coming to his town, is coming to Capernaum. And his servant, whom he cares deeply for, whom he highly values, and who was, according to John's account of this event, counted by him even as a son, was sick and dying. In fact, in Matthew's account of this same event, he says not only that he was sick and near to death, but in fact that He was paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Not just the fear of losing his beloved servant, but the fear of watching him in his suffering, in his pain, and not being able to do anything. So the centurion feels this this deep need, this utter inability to do anything to save his servant. And somehow in this terrible situation, he knew where to put his hope. If we're looking for miracles in this story, we may notice the healing, the great power of Jesus. And yet, John Calvin points out, before Christ healed his servant, the centurion had already been healed by the Lord. There are two great miracles here. And this is really the point. When Jesus tells us that he is the great physician... We have no reason to doubt that Jesus literally healed people. There's no reason within the text to think that it's not speaking literally. In fact, the gospel, in many ways, goes out of its way to prove that these things actually literally happened. It supplies witnesses, places, times. It goes out of its way to say, this really happened, and yet if we simply stop and say, God can heal, Jesus can heal, we're missing the point about The greater healing. If we look at Luke 5, you don't have to turn there, verses 30 to 32, it says And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So we see the physical healing. We see spiritual healing. We can often believe that the physical healing, in fact, is less important. This is often the hard thing as Presbyterians. We see denominations who are very concerned with seeing physical healings, with going out and watching miracles. And it's easy for us to retreat and say, the physical healing is not important, but we rejoice in the spiritual healing. But really what God tells us is that he is concerned with all of you. There is nothing about you that he does not seek to heal. It may not be in this life, but God cares about your body. He cares about your soul. He cares about what you do from day to day, from the struggles and the pains that you endure. I heard an illustration early in my Christian life that unfortunately I believed for a long time that my body is a bad taxi, It's this broken down junker, terrible car that I have to ride in for a while before God will relieve me of it and give me a better one. In fact, what God says is that he has redeemed even this bad taxi, that the taxi is already renewed. Everything about me is important to him. Everything about our church is important to him. Everything about your life. In fact, Jesus is intensely interested in my body. We hear that in what I eat and what I wear, he cares. Matthew 6 says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Now this asks us not to be anxious about our bodies, not because they're unimportant, but because God himself cares about them. It is not giving them up, not to be cared for, but giving them up to be cared for by someone far more able. And so when we speak of Jesus as the great healer, the great physician, we do so in the knowledge that the healing he brings defies our understanding, is greater than we will ever give him credit for, That even better than we can worship him for. Its scope exceeds our imagination. Jesus heals mind, he heals body, he heals spirit. He heals the individual and he heals the church. He brings restoration of health to the person and to the universe. And so as we look at Jesus as healer, We see him as healer, not just of the spirit, not just of one thing, but healer of all. Now, the centurion recognized that even though he wasn't the one sick and dying, he still came to Jesus in need of healing. One of the words on which this passage turns is the word worthy. You may have noticed that word comes up a number of times. Actually, in the Greek, it comes up really three times. Often English translations are hesitant to use a repeated word because we don't like to speak like that. If you use the same word in English multiple times in a sentence, it means you're unimaginative. But if you use it in many other languages, it's a way of showing emphasis, of showing that this is really important. And so the question is, is the centurion worthy that Jesus should heal his servant? Does he deserve it? Has he earned it? The centurion has a lot of things going for him. He has a lot of reasons that you might think he was worthy. He was the sort of person you wanted to have around. As a centurion, he was a leader of a hundred people. That's what centurion means. Cent meaning a hundred. According to a Roman historian called Polybius, the Romans appointed to this rank only men who can command, steady in action and reliable. When hard-pressed, they must be ready to hold their ground and die at their posts. So he's a man of great bravery, a man of great military prowess. We see his kindness, the way he cares even for his servants. It's been said you often know a person's character by how they treat those who are under them. It's a common first date advice. If you're at a restaurant with your first date, you don't think about how they're treating you, you think about how they're treating the waiter. And we see that the centurion cares even about those whom he has authority over. And then we see that even as a Gentile, he had come to care about the Jewish people, so he was a man who loved God. He helped them build their synagogue. He had earned the respect of their elders. And so the Jewish, tell, the Jewish elders tell Jesus, he is worthy. Yet the centurion counterclaims, he argues against them, and he says, no, I am not worthy. Even as they're trying to encourage him and say, look, we're going to present you in the best light to Jesus and he's going to be really impressed and he's going to heal your servants. Yet the centurion knows I'm not worthy. You may know my actions, but I know my heart. Yet somehow, even though he knows the depths of his unworthiness, even though he knows that all his righteous deeds have earned him nothing before Jesus, the centurion boldly asks, Please, heal my servant. Recently at an auction, um, a job application that uh, Steve Jobs had filled out when he was a young man came up for auction. It sold for a ridiculous amount of money. I think it was just about $200,000 for this slip of paper. But it was interesting. It was a unique or maybe not unique job application but unique for someone who you think of in such high terms as Steve Jobs. At this point, he was a college dropout. He had realized that he didn't know why he was in college, he didn't particularly like college, and so he dropped out, he was looking for a, jo- a job in technology, and yet when he wrote this uh, application, he did so in a way that very clearly did not expect to get the job he was going for. He put in the least possible amount of information He basically put, here's my name, here's my number, job experience, kind of, Um, school experience, kind of, in terms of, do you have transportation to to get to this job? His words were, possible, but not probable. (laughs) (laughs) And this is our expectation as we think about what we deserve in this life, if we've earned it. We put our best foot forward and we try to convince people that they need to offer us what we want, what we need. And yet if we don't feel that we've earned something, we can have a hard time asking for it. But grace means accepting that you aren't worthy of Jesus' love for you. You haven't earned it, you haven't made him, you haven't given him any good reason to show you grace. To show you love, to show you healing, and yet Jesus died on a cross for you, anyways. If the centurion was worthy, we would read this and be led to imitate his worthiness, and yet, because we see the centurion arguing passionately for his unworthiness, we read this and we say, I need to imitate the centurion, not because he's worthy but because of his humility, because he comes before the Lord knowing that he can't expect anything of him on his own merit, but yet knowing that he can ask boldly. It's not merely that Jesus admired the centurion's humility. That would just mean that he was worthy for a different reason, that he had the right characteristic of humility. But no, it's that humility gets out of the way the things that we believe can earn us a place before God, but which can't. And makes room for Christ to offer himself as the one who is really worthy. So for the centurion, humility is not the goal. But it's what allows him to take off the blinders. If you've ever seen a horse running, you put on blinders on the side so it doesn't see something else and run after it. Our pride can be blinders to Christ. Our pride can keep us from seeing what he is offering because we have something in its place. And so the centurion takes off those blinders. And he sees that Jesus has offered himself. He sees that Jesus, if he asks, if he asks boldly and gets himself out of the way and acknowledges who Jesus is, in fact offers this great grace, this great, great healing. Verse seven says, say the word and let my servant be healed. This is an interesting part. He says, for I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does. And so the centurion recognizes in Jesus where his power comes from. When the centurion acted, when the centurion went into battle or even asked for something in a town, he did so with the knowledge that he had the whole authority of Rome behind him. Right? When a police officer tells you to pull over, you're not thinking, I I could take that guy. No. You you think, that guy has the whole of America behind him, and if I try to run away, there are going to be a bunch more, so maybe I should take the speeding ticket. The centurion operates like this, and then he points to Jesus and he says, I too am a man under authority and if I ask a servant to go, he goes. To come, he comes. He says, Jesus, I know the authority that is backing your words. I know why when you tell, when you send your word out it does not come back void. I know the authority that you have, that you are the very son of God, that you are the very Christ. So we have looked at two questions so far. Am I well? Am I worthy? And the final question, the important question this morning, as it always is, in difficult times and even in good times, wherever we are in life, the question is, am I his? Do I belong to Christ? And what does that mean? We're told in verse nine, when Jesus had heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. The centurion didn't just have faith that Jesus could heal his servants. You can have faith in many things to heal. You can have faith in Tylenol, you can have faith in a false god and an idol, but he had faith clearly that Jesus was the Son of God, the Savior of his people, the Savior even of the Gentiles, what a bold claim for the centurion to make as a Gentile, as one outside the nation of Israel. Lord, I am unworthy, yet will you heal my servant. And this is primarily what we take away from this passage, the faith that we live with, the faith that defines, in many ways, our lives, not just as a one-time decision But the conscious choice that we make to acknowledge that yes, Jesus really will repay from his own fullness all he takes away. To have faith in Jesus is not simply to believe that he exists. How many times have you heard that? I believe in God, but I don't feel like it needs to change the way I live. I believe in the big man upstairs. But no, it's making a conscious choice to acknowledge That he is healer, he is Lord, he is friend. To know him as he reveals himself in his word. In this difficult time for our church, in this time where we're in many ways taking stock of where we're at, of who we are, this is what we do, this is what we do over and over through our lives, through each day. It's to remember, to have faith, that Christ is who he said he is. He does what he says he does. Why am I his? Why does Jesus' blood poured out on the cross avail for me despite my sin, despite my wandering? In Revelation, in chapter 5, the angels and the elders around this throne on which they see the lamb, they say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing over and over and over. The choice we have to make is, am I worthy or is he worthy? Have I earned it or has he earned it? Am I saved by the power of my work or by the power of his work? Even though the centurion is not worthy, even to have Jesus Come under his roof, yet his servant is healed because of the worthiness, not of the centurion, but of the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. May we say that over and over and over. The Lamb is worthy, and if you are his, his worthiness means that, yes, Even in a time like this, he will repay from his own fullness all he takes away. Every sickness, every pain, every grief, your Jesus will repay. Every illness, every time something you had hoped for, everything you had dreamed for slips away, Jesus will repay from his own fullness. And this is the important thing. Not always in the ways that we think are best, but from his own fullness, in the ways that he knows he has plans to bless you. From his own fullness, he will repay. The fourth verse of, Be Still My Soul is another, really, it doesn't end on an up note particularly. As many, of our, as many of our hymns do, it ends talking about dying. Ever thought about that? How weird it is? How many songs do you hear on the radio that ends talking about your own death? It would be a little bit depressing in that situation. And yet, when we sing in the Christian church, particularly following that third verse, death appears not as something to fear, not as something of loss. In fact, we are in many ways looking forward to that day. Verse 4 says, Be still, my soul. The hour is hastening on. When we shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrows forgot, love's purest joys restored. Be still, my soul, when change and tears are past, all safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. When we sing of death, we sing not in fear but anticipation of being with the object of our dreams, the object of our heart's desire, the object of everything we could want, every good thing. The hour is hastening, on, not of gloom. The hour is hastening, not of destruction, but when we, will, when we shall be forever with the Lord, all safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. And so the question we ask today and every day is, is this my hope? Is this where my hope lies, where my dreams lie? Is this what my life is going towards? In the midst of grief can be a time where we turn, we remember, maybe for some of us, there's been a period of our life that we had great faith and we felt like our faith was alive and moving us and changing us and we've hit a period in which it no longer feels that way. But God puts things into our lives to turn us, to cause us to look again, to remember His great faithfulness. Many times, the things that he takes away are so that he can offer, so that he can repay from his own fullness. Is this your hope today? The hour is hastening on. All safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. What a glorious truth.